Let's pray. Almighty Father, we thank you that you love us, and then in love you have made yourself known to us. We thank you for the testimony of the prophets and apostles through whom you have made yourself uh, present to us as Savior. So grant us now the grace and wisdom of your Holy Spirit as we study your word, that we will grow in faith in your Son, Jesus Christ, and through him be made acceptable to you. This we ask in his name. Amen. Okay, so hmm. Hebrews uh, chapter 5, as I pointed out last time, starts with the word for. Um, just like the previous chapter started with it, therefore. In other words, it's a continuing continuation uh, from uh, where we got to last time. In fact, really, the, this new section began uh, in chapter 4, verse 14. So what I suggest that we do is we read from there. So we we kind of backtrack a little bit and overlap with last week, uh, last uh, study from last time, uh, so that we... Uh, get the sense of the continuity of the argument. So beginning in chapter 4, uh, verse 14, and I would like to read all the way uh, to chapter 5, verse 10. I should warn that if anybody is eager to read, in order to be able to read this, you must be able to say the word Melchizedek, at least with confidence and fluency, even if not accuracy. So whoever would like to, whoever is feeling confident about Melchizedek, if you could be kind enough to read for us, please. At least it's not Mephibosheth. <laughs> no, the other one. Yeah. Well, there we go. Let us strive. Sorry, go ahead. Since we have, since then we have passed, we, uh, since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward, since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is bound to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honour for himself, only one called by God, just as Aaron was. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. As he says also in another place, You are a priest forever, in the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Being designated by God a priest, a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Thank you very much. Um, it is my plan to study that uh, up to that point because then the next section, which begins there and runs uh, halfway through chapter six, 
kind of changes the subject is a little bit of a footnote and it's it's a quite a tricky one um not because of we don't not because we don't understand it but because we understand it very well but it uh, uh so we we'll, we'll leave that to uh hopefully to another time so before i uh, i say anything would anybody else like to say anything about that passage either by way of comment or by way of question interesting um that tape talks about i presume it refers to um, jesus humanity that he had to learn obedience um uh, uh also i mean we think of him i mean he's perfect but you know you think of, well, of course when he was a baby he didn't start running immediately so he learned all these things when he was growing up so obedience i suppose is part of that kind of learning mm. yes i i do i i personally quite enjoy the way that Hebrews makes us think about the whole theological uh question of the two natures in Christ and how they interact and, and the whole question of Jesus' humanity. And I think this is one of those places. <clears throat> Thank you. Anything else? Anyone else? Um, it seems that it's the beginning of a speech or uh, something to start something off instead of telling us um, one thing or another, but not exactly telling us anything that we can learn by. Uh, what do you mean by learning in that sense? Well, it, it doesn't, um, it sort of reads him, it all sort of says the same all the time really, doesn't it? Um, I wouldn't say that it's just the same thing. What it does, the way the argument works, it, it, it's a bit like, uh, uh, it's a go, it, it's a circles. So it, it kind of does several passes of the same argument, but every, every, every pass it goes a little bit deeper. It's like a, it's like a sort of a spiral that digs deeper and deeper. So it's not that it, it moves on constantly to from one point to the next to the next. Uh, but each repetition is, is adds a new element to it. And in terms of learning, at the, this particular part of the letter, remember I said last time, I think all the time before that, the the way this letter works is it alternates between, uh, uh, if, if like uh, teaching and then application or instruction application. So there are passages that lay out the like the theological found groundwork, and then they are followed by passages that apply to the hearers in there's a more pra- in a more practical sense, and this is one of those. Uh, theological passages of instruction. Yes, it's very interesting that to be a true priest of God, you have to be called rather than decide, I'm just going to do this. Now, that is very interesting indeed. So tell, tell me tell me why that strikes you particularly. Well, I think the, uh, as a call, uh, the, the Lutheran thing, as a called and ordained servant of the word, I think that's... Uh, uh, that has been impressed on me in the last couple of years. Yes, yes. And has it impressed you? Very, very in you. Well, as long as God's choice is okay, then yeah, it was fine. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and also, what does that call look or feel like? You know, how did, what is it, what is it to be called? Mm. Good question. That is a very good question. Um, obviously this passage isn't about the ministry of the New Testament. But it has a lot of relevance for that question, the ministry in New Testament. So we'll, uh, can you please, please make sure that I, I, uh, I, I bring, that we bring the 
conversation to that point. If I don't bring it, then you bring it, bring me back to it if you like. I'm very happy to be held hostage to that. It's a very interesting, interesting and important question. So let's, so if we go back, uh, as a, to the end of chapter four, um, which is that, that still is, is of, uh, applying, uh, the, or it follows on from the application of Psalm 95, which speaks of the promised rest and those who do not enter the rest and that there's a rest that remains. Um, and the last verses of chapter four act as a bridge to the new line of argument that he introduces. We are, in a sense, we're, Drawing near to the end of the introduction to this sermon, I was listening to a a, a discussion of uh, uh, the the seventeenth, uh, late sixteenth, early seventeenth century, a poet and priest John Donne on the radio recently, and he was uh, possibly probably the most famous preacher in England in 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 the early in the seventeenth century. And he would apparently he would start writing next Sunday's sermon on the previous Sunday evening. Having delivered one, he started writing the next one. And these things could go on for three hours. And people came in and flocked there, you know, flocked to hear these things by their, by their hundreds and their thousands. Um, and if you, if you preach for long enough, you can have a long introduction and still have plenty of time left. And so this is a long, long sermon, not a three hour sermon, but nevertheless a longer sermon. Uh, and we are drawing near to the end of the, introduction here where he uh, first introduces this concept of the high priest since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens to Jesus the son of God let us hold fast our confession and this is the important turning point for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin so Jesus shares in our experience of weakness and uh, and of temptation, as you know, the, the next, first Sunday in Lent, for those of you who haven't got the lecture memorized, uh, uh, recounts the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness. So we will be, uh, we will be, <clears throat> um, uh, we, uh, Meditating on that more, but the difference is that he was without sin. But he knows what it is able to sympathize. Sympath- the word sympathy, to sympathize, is to suffer with, is to experience the same thing as as we. And therefore, let us with, with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So what he doesn't promise is that the, that there will be no need, time of need, or that there will be no suffering, but rather that there will be grace and help in those times. And then he begins the di- discussion of the priesthood of Christ, which really uh, so grows into his fullness in chapter 7. So these are, these are long, long drawn arguments and then, and that, that argument uh, takes all of chapter seven, eight and nine. Every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. 
So now we begin a comparison between the high priesthood of Christ and the high priesthood that is found in the temple. So the priests, high, or the priests who are priests according to the order of Aaron, which who are the human priests who are chosen from among men. Literally, it says taken from among men and appointed to act on behalf of men. Um, towards God. And again, the, it's the, the, the kind of, uh, uh over literal translation would say, it says that he's appointed, uh, to those things towards God are things that pertain to God. And the ESV says acting on behalf of men in relation to God. To offer gifts and sacrifices for or on behalf or on behalf of sins. What is that referring to? Is it referring to the Old Testament sacrificial system? So is it referring to the Old Testament sacrificial system, yes, in the temple? Is it the, is it once a year that one priest is chosen by lot to go into the holiest, holy of holies? Uh, we will come to that. That's in chapter seven. This is more general. This is a more general, uh, application of a description of the priesthood. So that would be a bit of a job description. Yeah. The priest was there to offer sacrifices. Yes. And it specifically says in the matters, uh, matters pertaining to God and offering gifts and sacrifices for sins. So it's the daily sin offering. It's a daily, it's a daily, uh, life of the, of the temple, the sacrifice, the sacrifices and offerings of the temple and the things pertaining to God, things towards God, if uh, that relate to God, those are the things about which the temple was all about in the priesthood. God is in his heaven and we are here on earth and the temple was the, the portal through which we had access to the presence and the grace of God, and that presence was mediated by the priesthood who offered sacrifices and offerings for sin so that we could draw near to God without fear. Because without sin, uh, without the forgiveness of sins, we could not draw near to God because he would be to us a consuming fire. And so they needed to be cleansing. And so the, but these high priests, and there was a high priest at any given time. So Aaron was the first high priest, and then that it passed originally down as the, you know, the eldest son. And then at some point, it, there were, there were uh, elements of, uh, of election or selection as well. But whether that election or selection happens by virtue of birth or by some other kind of process of appointment, you know, if you think of, the kings and queens of England. Some kings of England were kings of England because their dad was the king of England or mum was queen of England. Others came to the throne by some other means. But nevertheless, you could say they were appointed 
to that place. And the high priest was, cho- was chosen or taken from among men, appointed to act on behalf of men. And verse 4 says, No one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. Now, how was Aaron appointed or called by God? God told Moses to take Aaron to go and speak for him. Right, so God told Moses whom to appoint. So that was straightforward. What about the others? How did, how did someone like Eli become the high priest? He was a descendant of Aaron. He was descendant. So there was the same appointment, but then we find later on, for example, in the time of Jesus, uh, high priests were appointed. They were of the tribe of Levi? They had to be of the tribe of Levi, yes. And they had to be of the family or the, the clan of Aaron. But then there was political interference in the system as well. The Pharisees. Not the Pharisees, the Romans. Oh. They would they would depose troublesome high priests and replace them with ones that were more pliable. And we also see this process a thousand years previous, nearly. Uh, for example, when Solomon takes to the throne, and you have two prominent priests, uh, and uh, one of them is seen to be is is more pro Solomon than the other, and he ends up Zadok, hence. Uh, that Anthem Zadok the priest and Nathan the prophet. There were other prophets and priests around as well, and they became prominent because they were on the right side, if you like, in the in the matter of the royal succession. So there are there were human elements that kind of interfered in the system as well. And for example, at the time of Eli, Eli had sons, and the sons were killed, and therefore what you end up with is, if you like, a sideways step in the succession. The point of all of this being that he wasn't simply, you know, there wasn't, he wasn't a voice from heaven every time or even a drawing of lots guided by the Holy Spirit, who shall be the next high priest. The appointment was by a human process, but he was nevertheless called by God because God had said who it should be. Um, and no one can take that honor for himself. Some people tried. Do you remember? Didn't end well. Who am I talking about? The rebellion in the desert. Yeah, Korah's rebellion and you have Abiram and Dathan and so on. So there were people who said, well, you know, there were Levites who said, why is it only the sons of Aaron who get to do this stuff? What about me? What about us? And they wanted to be be a bit more democratic, a bit more representative. Well, being buried alive. How did it end? The earth swallowed them up. The earth swallowed them up. Wives, children, animals, tents, all. And Korah's rebellion therefore became a kind of proverbial uh, example of what happens when people take it upon themselves to enter into the holy place. Two of the sons of Aaron, who were priests, decide to go solo a little bit and they... In, in, on, in, in addition to the offerings and, and, and sacrifices of, uh, and, and rituals that have been 
decreed by God, decided to offer what is called simply known as unauthorized fire. And uh, they too died. Because they went and they took it upon themselves to decide how God ought to be worshipped. Is what at the time of the Reformation it was called self-chosen worship. This is why the reformers were so adamant about the evils of the monastic system as it existed at the time, where it was, you know, often taught, uh, uh, taught and believed that entering the monastic life was somehow, uh, uh gave, gave you access to gr- the grace of God that was not available to ordinary people. They were somehow, uh, you know, like, uh, even Thomas Aquinas, who was a, in many ways, a very fine theologian, spoke of taking monastic orders as a second baptism. He said, no, this is self-chosen worship. God nowhere commands this. Wasn't there a bit of this going on at the, um, at the English Restoration when sort of this, the C of E, which has started to be a much more sharp-toothed, um, body than it is now, absolute out, outlawed, um, Non-conformist worship and uh, spontaneous prayers and that sort of thing in public. Um, I, I'd be hesitant to pass judgment on that as such. Um, but, um, there was, I mean, within the Reformation already and then, uh, both uh, before and after the Restoration in England, there was a suspicion of thing, of certain things that were considered to be human, human traditions as opposed to divine worship there's even even within um for example within within kind of uh re- the reform tradition you have the so-called uh, regulative principle of worship that you should only do those things in public worship that are positively commanded in the new testament and if they're not positively commanded in the new testament you mustn't do that so instruments for example aren't allowed hymns that are not from the bible are not allowed because nowhere does it say in the new testament write some hymns and sing them as you gather, or some such thing. Now, I'm not going to go down that particular rabbit hole other than to say that the regulated principle itself is nowhere established in the New Testament, so it's got a little bit of a contradiction within itself. But nevertheless, I think that the sensitivity about uh, what is what is divinely established and instituted is uh, is a very good thing. Nobody takes this honor upon themselves. It is given, it is for those who are called. <clears throat> In other words, the one who takes the initiative is God himself. Um, I have told this uh, many times, but I will, it will bear repeating, um, this, you know, is it, uh, is it, is it okay? Are, uh, are women allowed to read the scriptures in the service or, um, can lay people give? And distribute the sacrament, for example, as, as people like to ask. And, and the reply by Norman Nagel always is, that's the wrong question. The question is, to whom has it been given to do those things? God deals in terms of gifts, not in terms of mere regulations. The regulations themselves are gifts where he says, this is for you. And if somebody then takes it upon themselves, like Korah and his clan or the date or, or, or the sons of Aaron or whatever, they are trespassing because they are taking the gift that is given to some or get a gift and then they, they, they appropriate it for themselves and treat it as if it was theirs by right as opposed to by gift. 
and the applications of this principle are many and numerous and and varied. Uh, But, for example, we're not going to have that discussion tonight. But if we were to have a discussion, for example, uh, for example, about the ordination of women, it's that topic itself, for example, is a sub subtopic of this this wider topic. To whom has it been given? God is not a spoil sport, says who 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 prevents some people from having good things while others get to have them. Rather, he gives his gifts variously to various people and various classes of people. And so also then, when it comes to the whole question of the priesthood. So, obviously there's an application for this in the New Testament church when it comes to the calling of ministers, as we call them, or pastors or presbyters, elders, priests, all the polite words, um, all mean the same thing. How does that actually go on, uh, Erica? I was just going to ask, how did you know that you were called? How did I know that I was called? Um, me personally. Mm, yeah. Uh, <clears throat> a friend of mine was wondering, who's been a pastor uh, a few years longer than I have, in fact, but uh, he, he, he was wondering uh, whether he was called or not, and he went to ask his pastors, how do I know if I'm called or not? And the pastor replied, the call comes by FedEx. Or we could maybe say the Royal Mail in this country. Uh, if a church wants you, they let you know. And, and that's the call. Um, in my very particular case, uh, I kept being asked and eventually I ran out of reasons to say no, that I, I believed in myself. I ran out of road on that. So I said, okay, I suppose that's a call then. Um, not, nothing more mystical or, 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 or inspirational than that. Some people have a very strong inner kind of call, but the inner call is secondary. The inner call itself is a sort of mystical experience, if you like, and it is not in itself reliable. The fact, you know, there are people who felt really strongly called and they are simply mistaken. They're mistaken in the first place if, for example, the church doesn't want them. And they don't, you know, individuals don't have the right to impose themselves. Said, you know, I have a really strong call. You must have me as your pastor. No, we don't. <laughs> you know, the church, uh, church doesn't have to dance to the tune of somebody's inner experience. Other people feel an inner call who are disqualified for whatever reason. There are all sorts of reasons, but there, the, the scripture set doesn't set out a, you know, in the New Testament, we don't have a, her- a hereditary system where you have, I don't know, the, Peter and his descendants are all priests and everybody else is not. Uh, it is in that sense available much more widely, but there are very clear qualifications set out for who can be called. And then the church calls. Now, how the church calls has varied from place to place and time to time. And in fact, even in the New Testament, we see different, different methods of, of calling. So for example, the seven in Acts, uh, Acts six who are, who are chosen. You know, they're chosen from, uh, from, by essentially seemingly, it seems that they're chosen by the congregation. Matthias, the, uh, twelve apostle who's, uh, chosen to, to replace Judas as the twelfth apostle is chosen by Lot. Um, but then Titus, for example, is instructed by Paul 
to appoint elders for the churches. So sometimes it's done collectively, sometimes it's done by lots, uh, a method that I think is much underrated. And then we have, uh, we have people who are appointed by, by someone who has been given that authority by, by somehow or other, uh, on behalf of the church. So it's, it's, you know, it's the commonest, historically the commonest way of appointing people is that you have a bishop and the bishop chooses ultimately or has to, has to say, you know, and, and you might, you know, people might present a person to the bishop and then the bishop as, as the one who has been appointed as the, as the head of the church in that particular jurisdiction has the final say, uh, in, in appointing that person. But the bishop himself has been appointed by the church to that role. So it's not that, you know, no, nobody makes a bishop of themselves. Um, but the church makes them so and then that delegates that task to them, whatever. So there are different methods. But however, whichever method the church uses, that is how the person is called. And it's that external call that is, is, is ultimately that gives it its validity. Just like in the time of, uh, of Moses and Aaron, regardless of how Aaron felt about him, Korah had a really strong inner call to be a priest. <laughs> it didn't work very well. Because the external appointment was missing. And the external appointment comes ultimately from God. But it comes immediately. That is to say, it doesn't, it's not direct. God doesn't whisper in our ears, but rather he speaks through other people. So the priests of the old covenant, which are the subject of this chapter, they were appointed, they were pe- pe- people who were appointed by God by means of other people. So it's an indirect or immediate call rather than immediate and direct one. Is that enough to answer that, kind of satisfy that question for? I mean, in a sense, it's a, it's a sort of, um, subsidiary point because this, this chapter is not about the New Testament ministry, but I think it's an important one, an important thing. Um, the point, of course, is, as we see in verses, uh, two and three, is that the priest is like everybody else, except for his appointment. In other words, it's not the person or the personality or the qualities or the character of the priest that that puts him in that position, but the fact that he is called. But he is like everyone else, so he can deal gently with the ignorant and and wayward or the straying ones, since he himself is beset with weakness. Uh, this word, deal gently, um Somebody whose opinion I, I, I very much value far above my own and many others, uh, expressed a very strong view that this is a poor translation, this deal gently. In fact, the word is not that different from the word to sympathize. Um, it's, it's got the pathy, pathy bit, uh, as well. Sympathy is, is, uh, is sympatheo and this is metriopatheo, kind of, uh, it, it it kind of over literally again it means kind of to to feel things uh in a measured way um and apparently it's in for example in greek philosophy there was a very common idea of the golden mean you know the right course of action is one that avoids extremes that you're neither stingy uh, nor a spendthrift but that you're prudent with your money you're neither a coward nor reckless, but you're courageous and yet measured and so on. That idea of 
of uh, of being in control of your feelings. You're not just driven by your passions. And so the idea is that is is that a restraint. Um. And so if you are a priest dealing with the ignorant and wayward. Because you know what it's like to be ignorant and wayward from first-hand experience, what these days is called lived experience, uh, you are able to deal prudently and in a calm and measured way with others because you've been there yourself. Rather than being either um, overly harsh or uh, overly lenient. He said, I know this is ignorance. I know this is waywardness. It needs to be dealt with, but hey, who hasn't been ignorant and wayward in the past? So let's deal with this in a, in a patient way. That's the idea behind that. But it all comes down to the sympathy. Oh, sorry, not sympathy to the, to the shared experience of weakness of sin. And it goes on in verse three because of this. And this again, that's a slightly unhelpful. Um, unhelpful translation because it, uh, it actually, that word this refers specifically to the weakness. Not to the principle, but to the very weakness. Because of this weakness, because of that thing, he's obligated to, or obliged to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those other people. He doesn't stand over and above or to, or, or to one side of the sin and weakness of people. He is there with them. I mean, within the, uh, the, the, our liturgy, we express that with the, with the, uh, uh, placing and, and position of the, of the liturgist in the service. Where, for example, when, when the confession of sins is read out, for example, any prayers, the pastor faces the same way as the congregation does. You know, when you confess your sins in a public set, in a, in a corporate setting, I don't stand there watching and listening as if in judgment, but I confess my sins as you confess yours. And when we pray, we pray together. And it's not that the pastor prays on behalf of the people, but he prays with the people. He just voices the prayers of the people. And if the, if it were like it might well be the case that for example, a member of the congregation is involved in, in the prayers of, of, of the church. Again, nevertheless, the liturgist, the pastor will face the same way as the people and pray with them. As we very, very rarely sometimes do, for example, Good Friday. So he is like them, except that he has a particular call. Called by God, just as Aaron was. Now, you'd expect then him to say, on the Christ, on the other hand, but he doesn't. He says, so also Christ. And this so means thus, in this way. Thus also Christ. Now, how is Christ like Aaron? Did not exalt himself to me being made a high priest. So Jesus did not say, you know what, I'm going to go and do that. I'm going to be a priest. And this is, by the way, the, the, the thing, if somebody says, I must be, you know, you must have me, you must ordain me because I feel a really strong calling. Uh, 
And they say, well, even if, if, if even Jesus didn't appoint himself, you don't get to appoint yourself either. And this is a pretty good argument. If you ever have that, if you ever have to have this uh, conversation. So Christ is like Aaron in that he does not exalt himself. He does not take, he doesn't uh, demand or, or, or place uh, uh, honor for himself or upon himself. But he was appointed by him who said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. That is by the Father. Now, Christ is in that, in that very much like Aaron and all other human priests. How is Jesus different from earthly priests? One thing we've already said. No sin of his own. He's sinless, yes. Rather significant. And he was appointed directly by God. Yes, he direct appointed directly and not indirectly. Good. But then also he's not only a high priest, but he's also the the offering, you know, the sacrifice. Yes, so he he doesn't he yes. doesn't offer external sacrifices, but he makes an offering of himself. He's not a descendant of Aaron. No, he's not. He's in fact, as we will discover, he's a priest after the order of Melchizedek. Yeah. Um, and that also, therefore. Um, means that, uh, he is, his appointment is an eternal appointment, not a temporary one. I mean, Aaron's was a life office. Only for life. But only for life. Whereas Christ has an eternal priesthood because his priesthood brought about eternal life. And he presides over all those who are brought there. And his, uh, not only is he directly divide, uh, appointed by, uh, by God, but he's, he receives as his appointment a direct oracle address to him as opposed to a mere statute about the kind of, kind of, uh, person, uh, that becomes a priest. He's addressed directly by God, um, by words addressed to him only. So there are obvious, very important differences. But nevertheless, there's this important overlap also. Christ's humanity is like the humanity of other priests. And this is from Psalms 2, as you know, you are my son, today I have begotten you. As he also says in another place, Psalm 110, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And if you recall, the uh, I think a very persuasive, at least to my mind, persuasive, persuasive theory about this whole Letter to the Hebrews is that it's really a sermon on Psalm 110. And there's opening verses. Also, there's no way that the disciples could stop the wind or the, or the sea or anything. It was only Jesus that could do that. Yes. So it's the divine nature, if you like, of Christ that, that is part. So he's obviously he's, he's in that sense entirely, entirely different in character, but not entirely. He, he nevertheless, he experienced suffering, he experienced temptation, yet without sin. And that's that without sin will become one of the key points, uh, in the argument, uh, not just of Hebrews, but of, of the whole of Christian theology. And so we are told that in the days of his flesh, uh, which, <coughs> um, 
we might say that is the writer of the Hebrews has the luxury of using that expression because he hasn't, he's not a writer in the middle of the Aryan controversy, for example, uh, which uh, was a couple of centuries later. But the idea, you know, obviously, uh, what this doesn't mean is that Jesus was in the flesh for a while and left his flesh behind in that, or that he left his body behind. But rather what that means is that th- this is referring to what, uh, later theological definition calls his state of humility. So Christ's state of humility as opposed to his state of exaltation. Uh, this is your, um, Christian dogmatics, uh, course 1a, uh, midterm test. When does Christ exal, uh, uh, humility, state of Christ's humility begin and end? First year seven. He humbled himself to become man and then again to die on the cross. So I guess that it began becoming man. The incarnation. Yeah, that bit. And ended with his ascension. Was resurrection. Well, we have a, we have a domestic happening here. (laughs) The other one's saying resurrection. Got a shirt on the end of it. (laughs) Right. So who, who's right? We need, we need someone, we need someone to, to mediate this argument so that these people can, uh, will not let the sun go down on their anger. So, which is it? Well, I would have thought that he was from the day he was born to the day he was crucified. I'm afraid, Rosemary, you, you are, you are slightly less close to the truth. Than either of these good people in, in, in Totten because Christ's incarnation wasn't his birth. When does Christ's incarnation begin? When he starts teaching with the disciples? No. When he's conceived? When he's conceived. Oh, right. Annunciation. Uh, well. So his incarnation is at his, announce, at, the, at his conception. Mm-hmm. And his humiliation does not end at his death. Uh, because he's then, he then remains dead until the third day. But the correct answer is that the, the, the way that is normally, um, spoken of is a Christ state of humiliation ends at his resurrection because from the point of his resurrection, he now, if you like, he appears in his, uh, sorry, Erica, I hope this doesn't cause too much trouble for you. Uh, but at, at, at his, re- if you see how Christ behaves after his resurrection, he no longer cloaks himself in his humility in that he, he appears through locked doors and, 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 you know, disappears out of sight and appears and, and so on. So he, in a sense, he's, he's sort of left the cloak of the limitations of the human flesh, uh, behind which is then, you know, uh, but at his ascension, he leaves then his, his physical, uh, presence amongst us, uh, comes to an end until his return. But that time, so the time between his incarnation and his uh, resurrection is the days of his flesh. And he has, at his resurrection, he's already triumphant, rather than still working towards his triumph. But, but he was still like he ate ate after his uh, resurrection and all that. So he, in some one sense, he was still in his flesh. Maybe yes, he, he, he is in his flesh. Yes, but then again, we will see, for example, in, in like, Revelation speaks of, speaks of the fruit of the tree of life still, uh, you know, being produced. In other words, that our bodily existence doesn't end. I mean, before the fall, those eating 
before there's the fall. It's just there, uh, there. The, uh, the, the method, and if you like, the source of food and, and the impact of eating change with the fall. And so Christ and Christ, we, we say we, we have no record of Christ hung, being hungry after, you know, at the resurrection. He, he eats to demonstrate that it's him rather, that it is he rather than a ghost. There's a demonstration of his bodiliness, embodiedness, as opposed to a necessity of it, the weakness of his flesh. So the weakness of Christ, if you like, his weakness came to an end at that point. His mortality. Nevertheless, um, you know, in the days of his flesh, she said, Jesus offered up. So this is the, um, uh, this is kind of the, the, his, his, his off, uh, priestly work during the days of his flesh. He offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because, because of his reverence. Now, what is this referring to? Garden of Gethsemane. Garden of Gethsemane. She said it. Garden of Gethsemane. Yeah. What makes you say that? Well, because he, uh, he, he asked God, you have not, for, have you forsaken me? That wasn't in Gethsemane, that particular phrase. Where was that? That's before he was crucified for the. That's on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So those are, uh, those are words that Jesus uttered on the cross. How did Jesus utter them on the cross? What was the, what was the, uh, the, the, um, manner of the delivery? He looked up, upwards. We're not told that. But we are told something else. He cried with a loud voice. Well, that's what he would have had to have done. No, he could have muttered it quietly or just hold it in his head. You know, you, you can pray and, and cry very loud, you know, uh, pray in, in loud voice or very, very quietly. You can, you can weep so that the whole village can hear, or you can sob, sob quietly so that nobody notices. There's no reason why he might have done, but he did, which all he cried out with a loud voice. Um, and he cried, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, whenever we see those words, um, just a reminder, a, a principle for reading the Old Testament as we find it in the New Testament is that we should never just take the phrase that is quoted as being the phrase that is being referred to. What I mean is that when, for example, Matthew says repeatedly, this was to fulfill what was written by the prophet and then he quotes a sentence. We should never just think, okay, that sentence is now being fulfilled. But that sentence is, they feel like the, the, the salient point in a much bigger chunk of text that's being referred to and that's like the heading that is so the the my go-to example always is jesus joseph mary's came to egypt with baby within uh, uh the jesus child and so this was to fulfill what was written by the prophet out of Israel, egypt i call my son um, which if it was simply that sentence is now being fulfilled, then it would be complete abuse of what Hosea actually says, because Hosea isn't talking about that at all. He's talking about something completely different. And, and it's, it, 
But if you read it in context, you actually get a far more profound and far more spiritually edifying and significant sense of the text because actually it's not just, oh, somebody said 700 years ago this would happen, it happened. Isn't that cool? <laughs> Rather said, okay, we actually learn something about Jesus. Not just, oh, somebody said, you know, on the 4th of January, the sun will not rise. And, oh, it's 4th of January, it didn't rise. They were right. So what? What's that got to do with me? It's not just a proof of, you know, that this is this is kind of true, that somebody thought of this beforehand, but actually we learn about Jesus. Now, when he says, Jesus cried with a loud voice, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? A lot of people, including those standing by, seem to take this as a cry. It's, it's often referred to as the cry of dereliction. It's a kind of cry of despair. But it is the first verse only of what? Psalm 22. Say it loud so we can hear it. Psalm 22. Psalm 22. And Psalm 22 is a lament. Psalm of lament. Turn to it. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? I, it seems to be a complaint. Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted, they trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. And then he, you know, basically he is reminding, he's drawing the contrast between what God used to do and what he's, what he's experiencing. I'm a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind, despised by the people. All who see me mock me, they make mouths of me, they wag their heads, and so on and so on. Verse 19. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. O my help, you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul, uh, from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. No, you have rescued me. That's a change of tone, isn't it? I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him, all your offspring of Jacob, glorify him, and stand in awe of him, all your offspring of Israel. For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, and he has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him, etc. In other words, what happens in the psalm is that it begins with a complaint, and it ends with a praise for God answering that complaint. And now we are told that in the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his presence. So this is, to my mind, a clear reference to that psalm being prayed by Jesus. But of course, they wasn't the last, it wasn't the only time Jesus prayed. We are told, for example, that before the, before Jesus chose the twelve apostles, he spent the whole night in prayer. That should, by the way, set the tone for the next time the church calls a pastor. <laughs> if the Son of God spends a night in prayer before selecting the apostles, who are we to do less? Given that we have, uh, we need more help than Jesus does in finding the right people. Just a thought. When the, uh, when Paul and Barnabas were sent on their first missionary journey, their sending, their selection and sending was preceded by fasting and prayer by the church in Antioch. Much to be recommended. Um, 
Jesus learnt, if you like, what he comes to. You know, he was the son. He learnt obedience through what he suffered. He learned through prayer. Jesus and and this praying of uh this is offering up prayers and supplications. Um what's the difference between prayer and supplication? Prayers are listened to by God. And Yes. Can't prayers be about anything but supplication has the um tone of request or like almost begging? Yes, so yeah, prayers is more gen- general. Um although the, the word that is for prayer here is a kind of uh, request or petition. Uh and supplication um I'm just looking up in my in my dictionary here. It says it uh, it it strict meaning of the word is supplication is an olive branch entwined with white wool and fillets and carried by suppliant. And so it's uh, somebody who comes. So the the if you like the the first word is a more specific, uh, more sorry, more general asking for things, and and the second word is more praying for oneself. That's the supplications when you pray for yourself as opposed to uh, intercession when you pray for others. Um, so he prayed for himself and he prayed more generally. He made made requests and he made uh, supplications, so personal requests. And I think this is a good point to remember again. I think there's there can be no doubt that Jesus used the Psalms Um in his prayer, he would have done because everybody did. All devout Jews would do. And so he was, he was heard because of his, uh, reverence. Uh, and again, that word reverence, um, <clears throat> the, um, the root of that word means having an appropriate demeanor. So the idea is that you are compliant or uh, behaving in an appropriate way. Uh, and hence the idea of reverence or submit, reverence submissiveness, the NIV says. Um, I think that I was just looking at my Finnish Bible where he says because of his fear of God, but the word God doesn't actually appear in the word at all. But it is, it is a reference to kind of when you come, kind of we have an awe, you come, you know, you, you behave in a way that demonstrates that you understand the situation and you're acting appropriately within it. You know, if you, if you come, um, when I was in a youth group as a teenager, um, the, I remember the guy, the pastor who, who, who led it and who did all the teaching, he told very many times the same story. So it was clearly something that really stuck with him about the time when he completely misunderstood a situation and he turned up as the pastor he turned up at somebody's house, literally in tracksuit bottoms and smelly trainers. And in fact, it was a uh, suits and ties occasion. And he had completely misunderstood. And said he, and he clearly, he was still embarrassed about it years later because he kept telling the same story again and again and again about, and, and 
you know, you can imagine there are lots of youth group talks that you can make on that basis of what it's like to come in the presence of God and et cetera, et cetera. But this idea that, you know, you turn up for a wedding and you're wearing, uh, you know, wearing a tracksuit. Or you go to a funeral and you're so sort of giggling aloud and, and whistling. That's not appropriate demeanor. So it's not just that Jesus prayed in a particular way, but that his prayers were, you know, came from the right kind of, um, uh, right attitude and understanding of his standing before the Father. Hence the idea of reverence. And, uh, there's, um, I used to subscribe to a magazine, like a journal, uh, for pastors and, uh, it always had a, a column on some aspect of the conduct of the liturgy. And a bit of prescript, you know, how best to do this or that or the other. And, uh, but he always had a strap line. It was a quotation from a, from a book by some Anglican priest from the 1930s. And, and it went like this. Reverence is a matter of taking pains. I.e. making an effort to do the right thing. Um, and I, I imagine as I said in society, tongue in cheek. But it's about being careful about how you present yourself. Obviously, it's the internal that matters, is, is, is essential, but the external either accompanies it or distracts from it. And so Jesus was uh, heard because he prayed appropriately with reverence, with the right demeanor, appropriate demeanor. And there's obviously an application for us in terms of what is an appropriate demeanor for us. And we will come to that eventually, but if you can't wait, we pray in the name of Jesus. Not in our own name. We pray as those who are unworthy in themselves, but have been given the right to pray by Jesus on account of our standing with him and in him. Although he was a son, verse 8, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And this is, this is one of those difficult things. And uh, if you ever, if you ever end up teaching theology to first year uh, theologians, uh, you must always set a test, a question in a quiz or in a test with, uh, to ask about whether Jesus actually, if Jesus was truly God as well as truly man, did he learn anything in life? You know, was was the two-week-old Jesus omniscient and omnipotent or not? And and the 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 purpose of asking that question, first year theologians, that they will tie themselves in knots, and it'll be very amusing to watch. Okay, that's that's the only only benefit from of asking that question. But can you can anyone point point out a passage in the Bible that suggests that Jesus did in fact learn outside of this verse? When he his parents found him when he when he was twelve and he was in the temple and lost for three days and then you know parents found him and they after it says well I can't remember what it says in in English but uh, but he grew with wis in wisdom and obedience or something. Like that. So he grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. Yes, there was another one where he was actually surprised by the faith of the centurion. He said, not even in Israel have I found such faith. Yes, although 
you could you could obviously uh i mean the, the word surprise doesn't occur in the original greek in other words that he was he was uh, he he commented on it uh with approval and that came to him as a complete uh, unexpected um we we can't tell from the text but there is obviously jesus jesus behaves like like a man you know the fact that he's angry when he's in the temple suggests that he was expecting something better or something like that. But you have this particular verse, the, the very verse I was I was thinking of earlier, which is the end of Chalut 2. Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature in favor with God and man. And he did so, and this is in the context where he was in the temple asking questions. Asking good questions. I When I used to teach uh, uh, teenagers, I used to say the thing that I now say to adults when I teach them, so I'm telling you now, since I'm here as as teachers, that it's not the people who have the best answers who learn most, but the ones who have the best questions. If you keep good answers, you already know it. You're not learning anything new. But if you ask good questions, you will learn something new. And Jesus was found in the temple asking questions. And he grew in stature. So Jesus learned. But here he's, we're told that he learned not from his study of scripture, although Study of scripture is, is for us a vital aspect of learning, which is why we have this Bible study. But he learned obedience from what he suffered. Now, how does that work? He learned obedience through what he suffered. Was it perseverance in the face of setbacks and sore rejection, that sort of thing? I don't know. Tell me. I, I, I pose it as a question. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't know the answer either. Well, what, as, what as, is... Go on. I was going to say, as God, would he ever have suffered? Well, that's the, fir- that's the question for the first-year theologians again. Did Jesus suffer? As a man, he suffered. Had he suffered before he was incarnate? What do you think? I would say no. The technical term is, is impossibility. It's one of the attributes of God. Impossibility, which means that God is, God does not suffer. Because he doesn't change. Suffering in, involves change. And God does not change. He's eternal and unchanging and therefore he doesn't, he cannot also suffer. And yet Christ suffered the, if you want to know how, how in Lutheran theological tradition language is normally used to try and be as precise as possible and try, and try to stay as far from the precipice of error as possible is that we say that he, he suffered according to his human nature, but not according to his divine nature. According meaning in accordance with, but not in accordance with the other. And yet, but there is only one Christ. He wasn't like, you know, the two, you know, he wasn't like Nestorius, one of the early church heretics said, you know, that, you know, the, the, um, uh, another illustration used says that, you know, he, his conception of who Jesus was like two, two bits of wood that have been glued together. But they remain separate. They just stuck together, you know, the divine and human nature and the church said no. There's just one Christ. 
but this Christ is in two natures. And, and so the human nature, because, because he was man, he suffered. And he genuinely suffered. And because he's one person, the whole person suffered, even though that suffering was in accordance with his human nature. And we kind of, we run into, into, into the, uh, the thick fog of mystery very quickly. And we must stop inquiring too much because all it does is scramble our brains. Yes, Rosemary. Are you saying then he didn't, when he was beaten, he didn't feel the pain? I'm saying that he very much did feel the pain. That's what I thought. Because of his human nature. In accordance with his human nature. Hmm. He bled. Yeah. He was hungry. And he was thirsty. Mm-hmm. He grew tired, so he had to sleep. But the divine nature needed no feeding, and the divine nature needed no sleep. But Jesus did. Because he is truly God, and truly man. But because it's one person, for example, Paul in Ephesians talks about the, um, you know, uh, God made atonement by his blood. You know, does God have blood? Well, in Jesus, yes. So the blood of Jesus is the blood of God. In that, Jesus is the son of God, part of the one Godhead, and so on. You have to be careful as, as how far you push that, but that's how we can speak. But there, so Jesus as, was a son. He learned obedience through what he suffered. There was a change in Jesus, and the change came through suffering. Now, this is given, at, at this point, this is not, the, the author doesn't make that direct application, but he cannot ignore the fact that he is addressing Christians who are experiencing suffering on account of their faith. And he's pointing out that Jesus learned obedience through what he suffered. The subtext being, of course, that this is how, if you suffer, this is also a source of learning. Learning what? Learning obedience. And this is very, very similar to what Paul writes to Philippians 2 in that very, very famous passage when he says, um, in fact, in a very similar fashion altogether, because it also talks about Jesus not appropriating things for himself, that Christ, who, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a, a thing to be grasped. He didn't appoint himself. But made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him. So it is the obedience learned through suffering that leads to the exaltation. And he learned that obedience through suffering. And it is, I mean, I, I'm, I'm sure we could come up with, if, if we want to have a little competition, lots of different, uh, illustrations of this, but it's the, it's the old poster that I, I first remember seeing, uh, in a friend's room when I was about 14. Dear Lord, please give me patience, but would you hurry? Um, you now we want to learn patience and we want it quickly. But actually, how do we learn patience? By being patient. Now, how do you become patient? 
Well, you learn, you learn what it is that you want to be patient for, understand what you've got to do, and then you patiently wait for it. Thank you. The waiting bit I was hoping you'd say. You learn patience by waiting. You practice waiting until you get good at it. It's just like crocheting. You know, you do more of it, you get better at it. The more you wait, the more patience you get. If you want to learn humility, well, there's usually one, one way of learning humility. If you say you come to the knowledge of your humbleness, that's usually not a comfortable experience, but it's very good. You learn your limits by hitting them. And so on. Learning comes through suffering. And all this, this applies, I mean, there, there are all sorts of secular, secular applications of this. You want to get good at language? You just have to study it really hard. You want to get good at the violin? Practice. I remember when uh, one of my children went to, go to, took him to a concert of a famous, famous, famous uh, musician of the same instrument. And uh, we managed to sneak backstage after the performance to say hello. And, uh, and, and, and the uh, soloist said to, Oh, so you, oh, you play too. He said, um, what do you, uh, do you like playing? And he answered very, with the honesty of an 11 year old, I like playing, but I don't like practice. At which point this, uh, very accomplished professional said, Oh, nobody likes practice, but that's what you got to do if you want to get good. You know, and, uh, it's the learning through suffering and you, you can apply it in a million ways. But how much more important it is for us Christians who'd like to have a rosy path? You know, the, I mean, one of my, uh, one of my uh, misgivings about the Alpha course is that it, it, uh, it offers, uh, uh, you know, kind of sells itself as, 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 um, uh, providing, you know, supplying to you the meaning of life. Um, which it, you know, the Christian faith does. But it sounds quite a, in some ways to say, well, it's, it's in, in a sense, um, you know, Jesus says, he doesn't say, come and follow me and you find the meaning of life. He says, actually, take up your cross and follow me. Deny yourself and follow me. If you want to live, you will not. If you, if you want to live, you need to die. And so on. And it's through this loss that we actually gain, because this is the way that God sheds us of all the other things and his purpose. And they said, once, and being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. So Christ learned obedience through suffering, and now he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being, him being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. So it is after Christ's suffering. So what is this Christ being made perfect? I thought he was God and God is perfect. Is that, um, oh, I don't know if I've got the words to say this. Um, is that uh, in his nature as a man, just as he grew in wisdom, well, as God, he didn't have to grow in wisdom. But as a man, as a boy, he was growing in wisdom. So he was never imperfect, but because he was learning obedience, 
um, that made him not exactly more perfect, but it's sort of more complete, more complete in his perfection. Like, yeah, I see. I, I see what you're saying. Rod Rosemary was saying about the, his prayer in the um, Garden of Gethsemane the night before he died, when he actually prayed that this cup would be taken from him. Um, but your will be done, not mine. And that was his obedience. So he was still sort of not having doubts, but he was fearful of what was to come. Mm. Um, but he made himself be obedient. Yes, um, and I think I'm glad you said more complete, complete perfection, because the, the, the word that we have, you know, in English we have two words, completeness and perfection, and in Greek there's just the one word that means, means them both. The, the, the kind of, again, the, the fundamental meaning behind that word for perfection or completeness is the idea that something has reached its goal. Now what does perfected humanity look like? Christ. Right. And in in terms of adge- actual adjectives and and I say oh. <laughs> so if if Christ is perfected humanity, what is it about Christ's humanity that is perfected? Given that he was always sinless before you anybody says that. So that that he already had. So how was Christ perfected if he was already sinless at the beginning? And I'm asking that because we often think of perfection in purely moral terms. But there's more to life than morals. You see what I mean? His perfection had to be tested. How does that make him more perfect? Um, it was because he was on the cross and feeling all the pain and everything at that time. That what? That he took all our sins and died. But how does that, what, what, what I'm asking, I'm not asking about what, what's Jesus like in I'm asking what does perfected humanity look like? What does it mean to be perfected humanity? Well, there isn't such a thing. It would only be if you were God. There is. You're heading for it, Rosemary. You haven't yes. got it yet, but you're getting it. Sinless mortality. Right, mm. sinless, but that's Jesus already had. What's the second part? Sorry, I didn't hear. Immortality. Immortality. Raya, what are you doing? Oh, yeah. Well, I was just saying sort of unity, a peace with God, that you, you have, there's no division between, um, um, the sin is no obstacle any longer, in a way. Yeah, so, yeah, so the, the, all these things. So perfection of humanity is not merely, uh, faultlessness. That's a negative definition to say Christ was sinless and therefore perfect. Well, okay, see, so he did not have sin. What did he have? And of course, Christ was perfectly righteous all along. So that, that wasn't part of his perfection. But by the time he had risen from the dead, he was beyond the reach of death and corruption. And he was subject to death and corruption for a time in the days of his flesh. And that having been accomplished, he came, two things happened. He came and he made himself known to those who were his and he ascended to the immediate presence of the Father. And so he was united with 
those who have faith in him and he is in the immediate presence of the Father. And that is exactly what perfected humanity will also be for us. That we will be in perfect fellowship with one another and in the presence of God. As was the case before the fall, but only more and better. And this is again, so Christ was perfected and he's now perfecting us. He is the source of eternal salvation. Salvation, remember, means rescue, it means healing, um, it means wholeness. And it is in contrast to their weakness. So in, in verse uh two and three, he himself is beset with weakness. The you know the the human priests after the order of Aaron. Well, like us, beset with weakness, Christ is, has no weakness left in him. He is perfected, and he saves us, and therefore we too will be free from weakness, which is ultimately, uh, uh, you know, the ultimate form of weakness being death, which comes from sin, both of which are forms of weakness. Again, that word weakness, it kind of means, it kind of the idea is that there's something lacking. If you're weak, you are lacking strength. If you sin, you're lacking righteousness or perfection or goodness. And so Jesus, and all of what we see here is this motion that we will see happening, you know, we will see return to again and again, which is that Christ goes ahead and he does something. And having done it, he accomplishes it. He now begins to draw others to the same and bring us all to the same. And so that we receive the same benefits as he does, by going where he leads us in, if like, by his strength, in his strength, and above all, by the means of his ministry to us. And this is really important. We we don't receive this simply by saying, okay, Jesus did that, now we're going to do the same thing and we're going to have the same results. But rather that all of our life now consists of us entering into the ministry of Jesus, where he ministers to us. Remember back in, 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 uh, chapter two or, you know, or end of chapter one, referring the angels being ministering spirits, serving spirits. You know, they and Christ is superior to them. So they do his bidding. And we are by, instead, but we are not ministering creatures. We are creatures who are ministered to. So you've got creatures who minister doing Christ's bidding, and they minister to us. So Jesus sends angels to us to do what he wants to do, and not just supernatural angels, but also other kinds of angels, as we will find out in due course. And the final word is just to say that he was designated by God. Uh, it says... Um, so having, you know, Christ did not take it upon himself, uh, but God designated him. Um, the idea is that you are, again, the root uh, behind this idea designates that uh, you are addressed by a specific term or title. It's a bit, think of, you know, you go to Buckingham Palace and you kneel and then Somebody puts a thing on your shoulder and says, arise, Sir Adrian, you know, or whatever. Um, and the designate, the, that, that, that address creates a new reality. 
or, you know, at, at a wedding. I now pronounce you man and wife. And that pronouncement creates a new reality. And God said to Jesus, if you permit my speaking in human terms, arise, O priest, after the order of Melchizedek, and raise him from the dead. And God gave him that title, and God the Father gave him that title. And that title was his because he was perfected through suffering on behalf of us all. Now that's all in the past. He now is a priest after the order of Melchizedek. So this is all reflection on what happened during Jesus' earthly ministry. This is what was being accomplished. And now Jesus has that title already. And so now we, when we come to Jesus, we come to his high priest. And what do priests do? They carry mm-hmm. out service. They carry out service on behalf of the people to mediate between God and man. And now Jesus does this. So the whole Christian life consists of entering into the benefits of Jesus' priestly ministry to his people. Which, as the kids might have said a few decades ago, is quite cool. And it's a very, very different enterprise from any other religious enterprise. Which consists of us drawing near to God with something that we are doing. Or hoping that by some chance the will of God happens to fall in our direction. We will pick up from here next time. So, a couple of minutes for final reflections or questions, comments. How long was it before he ascended after he... It was 40 days from his resurrection. Right. Any other thoughts, questions about this or or related things? Why does it say, today I have begotten you? Today, was he not begotten before all worlds? Begotten of his father before all worlds. Hmm. It says, today I have begotten you. Yes, so in the the historical setting of that psalm itself, uh, it is a coronation psalm. Hmm. Um, So the king king of Israel being crowned was, I've heard a few Americans say recently, coronated, uh, (laughs) crowned. Um, he, um, He declared to be a son of God by his coronation now how does that relate to Jesus given that Jesus by his divine nature is the eternal son of God begotten of his father before all worlds well again if you think again we must this is where it's helpful to speak of Jesus as opposed to the son of God we're talking about Jesus of Nazareth the son of Mary and he's 
you know, when is this uh, coronation of Jesus when he's declared when he's declared to be God's son? Well, we have the voice from heaven at his baptism. We have the voice from heaven at his transfiguration. And then we have Christ's uh, coronation, public coronation at his ascension. Where he's, you know, where, where all, all, all authority to, is given to him in heaven and on earth. This is why I'm, I'm very, very unfond of this liturgical innovation. Well, most liturgical innovation from the seventies, um, I'm allergic to, but there's, um, I can't, I think it's the Roman Catholic Church that uh, innovated it and then others have followed suit of designating the last Sunday of the church year, the Sunday of Christ the King. And said, so, you, know, you know, that we already had that. The festival of Christ the King is the ascension. And rather than diluting it by making up a new one, let's just really work hard to celebrate the original one so that we, we make that connection. So this, the answer to your question, therefore, is that it is the, in like in Christ, Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth is, is proclaimed son of God at his, at his coronation in that sense. Um, so it's not a reference to the, like the eternal begetting of the son of the father in that, in that kind of more, um, mysterious sense, but rather to the specific ministry of, uh, Jesus, oh. the son of God. Well, let's draw to a close there then. We close with prayer. Father, we thank you for the patience of our Lord Jesus Christ in suffering on our behalf and in our place. From humility and the obedience that he learnt and the salvation he is now able to bring to us because of his obedience. Teach us likewise obedience to him in faith. That as you allow us to suffer, we will not grumble or complain, but entrust ourselves to you as he entrusted himself to you on the cross, knowing that you will perfect us. Grant us grace always to hold on to all your promises which are ours in Christ Jesus. In the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with us all. Amen.